Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. There'll be time to talk afterwards, too. We typically hang out for a while and chat. So if you didn't meet somebody or maybe you saw someone you want to meet, that's not insinuating anything. This isn't like church dating 101, but there may be someone. You're like, oh, they, I want to meet them. So um, we're glad you're here this morning. Uh, we are in our, still in our series for two more weeks in the book of Revelation. So we're finally down to the wire, walking through the last book of the Bible. <clears throat> We've been in the series since, like for the whole fall when we started, and um, the title of the series, for those of you who are new, is called Blessed. And we've talked about this week after week, and there's a question mark there, because oftentimes when the book of Revelation is preached or taught or when people read it, the first thing you don't think of is blessing, right? The word blessing, actually, the word blessed in the Greek means happy. That's what the word means. <clears throat> and happiness is not something that should be based on circumstances. It's something that should come from deep within based on our relationship and our knowledge of who God is, what he says about the world, and what he says about mankind and who we are. That should be where our happiness comes from. Unfortunately, we've been taught, even in Christian circles, to find our blessing and our happiness in circumstances and things not in God himself, which is why the book of Revelation, when we read it and teach it, doesn't become a book of blessing and happiness, but one of like, oh no, we're going to lose stuff. Right? Like, that's not blessing, because we've redefined the word. We looked at that in the first message when we started this series, when Jesus, in his first sermon that he ever preached, the first thing he preached about was how to be happy. He preached the Beatitudes. He said, blessed, happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who are persecuted. And that message is just as weird today as it was the day he preached it. And he said, blessed are those. And so we know that this is what the book's about because John said it. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, he said, the one who reads this book, reads these words, is blessed. Those who hear and keep it are blessed are happy. Like this book is designed to give you great joy and happiness because the rest of the world is scared about what's going to happen to their life. They don't know how things are going to turn out. And John is saying, God has called me to write this to you so you can know and find great joy and peace and happiness in the world you live in, knowing what's coming. And then, just to be sure you understand that's what it's about, in the last chapter of the book, he says it again. Blessed is he who heeds this book. You are, you're going to be happy if you understand this. Again, part of the reason that I said before, but another part of the reason of why we don't find the book of Revelation, a book that makes us happy, <clears throat> is because we've spent far too much trying to figure out how to keep things and how to keep from going to hell than we have realizing all that God has done and what awaits us. More Christians know more about hell than they do heaven. They know more about where they don't want to spend and where they're not going to spend eternity than they know about the place they're going to spend eternity. That's nuts. Why? Well, because we don't want to kind of look at the book of Revelation. And as we wrap up in these last couple of chapters, it's beautiful. It's glorious. I've been waiting. After chapters 12 through 18, I've been waiting to get to this point. Like, it is so glorious and beautiful, and it's everything that you long for. It's every, 
it's, it talks about marriage. It talks about houses. It talks about great cities. It talks about peace and food and water abundant. Everything that you could ever want, the book of Revelation finishes and says yes, yes, and amen. And that's where we're going to dive in this morning. Before we dive in, every week I share this verse in Acts. Those of you who have been here know this. Hopefully you haven't memorized by now. It says, when the disciples had come together, these are the followers of Jesus. Jesus has died, been resurrected, and this is right before he ascends to go back to heaven. And we wait for him to come again. Okay? That's the context of this verse. His disciples ask him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? In other words, are you going to fulfill all of the Bible at this time, wipe out the nations, make everything new, give us the land the way it's supposed to be, bring back the Garden of Eden? They're like, is now the time? And Jesus says to them, it is not for you to know the times or the periods the Father has set by his own authority. It's not for you to know. Oh, there's nothing that makes us more mad than that. Tell me, when are we going to be there? I, I don't know. It takes about two and a half hours. There could be traffic. <sighs> You're not going to know. And anybody that comes to you and says they've got the book of Revelation figured out, just run. They don't have it figured out. The reason Jesus was missed the first time he came was because all the religious people had it figured out and he didn't fit how they had it figured out. Remember that. They crucified him because they said, you can't be the Messiah because you don't fit all the scriptures the way we understand it and the way they fit together and the way we've made our system. So you're gone. We need a new Messiah, one that's going to come and restore everything. We're looking for the kingdom Messiah. And Jesus says, quit looking for that, because I'll come one day for that, but not right now. He says, but, you're not going to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come on you. Power to do what? To do big stuff? To change the world? To make big cities and wonderful things? He says, no, power to be my witnesses. The word witness there in the Greek is martyr. That's where we get the word martyr. You will be my martyrs in Jerusalem, the place you live, Judea, the places around you, Samaria, the places you don't want to go because they're not like you, and to the ends of the earth. I didn't write the book, folks. These are Jesus' very words. So when we approach the book of Revelation and when we're coming down to the end of the book, remember, Jesus said you're not going to know the times or periods. However, you will know the plan. And you will know that those who are my witnesses and those who know me and those who trust me, you can be confident that the Holy Spirit is with you. You can be confident that I'm going to come back and make Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth new again. You can have full confidence. We've looked over some of these different titles. Last week we talked about the thousands of blessings to generations and the thousand-year reign of Christ. We looked at that. This week... We're going to look at everything being made new. How many of you really like and love hand-me-down things? I mean, over new things. Like, if you could choose between hand-me-down or new, you would always choose hand-me-down. Like, like if you, okay, if you could choose a meal that someone ordered at a restaurant that they wanted and they ordered and they were going to give it to you versus ordering your own meal, which would you choose? See, we want everything new, but we don't want to pay for it. 
We don't want to pay for the cost of it. I want everything new for free. And if I'm given hand-me-downs, well, that's the worst thing that could ever happen. And most of us, see, we want to give our hand-me-downs to people. We don't want to give them our best. See, once we've used something up, we hand it down to someone else. We don't give them our best. I had a pastor once as a part of a church, and they were building a new building. And people would want to donate all their old stuff. And he was really good about looking at them and saying, how about this? How about you keep the crib you have and buy the church a new one? And people got very offended. He's like, well, the Bible says to give God your best. Why don't you give a new crib? Or buy two new cribs, one for you and one for the church. Why is it that we expect that God is fine with our leftovers? That he's good with just the the leftover stuff that we give him, not the first Remember, in the Old Testament, the definition of blessing and happy, the way to prove that was to bring your offering through the seasons, through the the cycles, through the festivals, through the fruits, and all the things that were given. You were to keep doing that to declare we are so happy about who God is and how he's provided, what he's done. We bring him the first fruits, the best of what we have, because it all belongs to him. We're just bringing a portion to share with everybody else. And we've been taught in our culture that God's okay with your leftovers. When we're not okay with somebody's leftovers at the table next to us. God is going to give us and gave us his best. His son. Someday God is going to give us everything new his best. He requires and asks for nothing of us that he doesn't first do and promise. Not ever. There's not a single law of the Old Testament that God didn't hold accountable on himself and on Jesus on the cross. He never asks anything that he isn't willing himself to take. There is no other God that presents that. Not a one. He gives his best and someday he is going to make everything new and give his best. We want a new way of doing things, new relationships, new this, new that, and we keep thinking that's going to fulfill us, and we keep finding ourselves empty, empty, and empty because Christ, God, is the only one that can make things truly new. Everything else is passing away. That's what Scripture allows us to know. So let's dive in. Revelation 21, verse 1. There's only two chapters left. Here we go. You've had seven judgments, right? You've had seven trumpets blown. You've had seven, um, seal, seven seals broken, seven trumpets blown, seven bowls pulled, poured out on the judgment of the earth because we've messed things up so badly. Christ has, come in, has already came back. He's won the victory. He's thrown Satan and he's thrown the devil and the beast and the Antichrist into the fire. We just looked at that in the lake of fire that we saw in the last chapter. This is coming to the end when everything has been finished. There's no leftovers. It's done. Now what do we do when there's nothing left? There's no leftovers even to share. It's all gone. Then, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. They were dead. 
and the sea no longer existed. You see, we want everything new, but we don't want it to be different than what we have. I I want new, but I don't want a car that has 60 computers. I want one that has roll-down windows and locks. Because I don't want all that fancy stuff that breaks and then I have to fix. Right? Some of you are shaking your head like, yeah, yeah. You young people don't get it. You will someday, trust me. Can you imagine if you were using a 10-year-old MacBook right now as your college computer or a 10-year-old Windows machine as your college computer? Welcome to a 10-year-old car. It's full of 10-year-old computers driving around. Yeah, see what I mean? See, we want everything new, but we still want it to be the same like I like it. Like the way I do it. You know, new, but, but the same. God's like, no, no, no. I'm going to make everything new, and it's not going to be, it, it's going to look really different, and it's going to be awesome. And you're going to love that self-driving car. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Yeah, you will. It'll be great. No, I really don't. It, he says, I'm going to make everything new, a new heaven and a new earth. And then he goes on to actually describe what that's going to be. Now, I don't know what a new tree looks like. I know what an old tree looks like. He's going to make a perfect tree. What's a perfect tree look like? I don't know. I just know broken trees. I just know trees that die. There are going to be trees that don't. I don't know what that looks like. He does. He has a plan for it. There's going to be a new heaven. What's that mean? I don't know. I can know a little bit, but not fully. And then he says there's going to be no sea. See, most of us, when we read this, this doesn't excite us. This freaks us out. No sea. Well, I can't. How's there going to be no sea? I mean, how do we get? I don't understand. Like, instead of rejoicing and saying, oh, my goodness, we just read 20 chapters, and it's all finally finished. All the evil's gone. All the mess is gone. We look at this and go, how's there not going to be a sea? Because we've been taught to question God and doubt him, not be excited about what he says is true. That's why when we read the book of Revelation, we're not excited, we're not pumped up, we're not like, yes! We're like, oh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Like, we're standing in judgment of God. You can't make no earth with no sea there, Mr. God. He doesn't say there's not going to be any lakes. We'll see in a minute there's going to be rivers. There's going to be a river coming right out of heaven. He doesn't say there's not going to be water. He says there's going to be no sea. You know what that means? No salt water. There'll be no water that you can't drink and enjoy. There'll be no need for salt water because salt water, the reason it's salty is for purification because of the mess that we make. And you need the salt water to purify and cleanse. There'll be no need for salt water. There'll be no need for purification and cleansing. It'll all be fresh water that you can drink forever. And a world where you can be stuck on the ocean for as long as you want to be stuck and just reach down and drink and never go thirsty because it won't kill you to drink it. See, God's pretty smart. He created salt water to show us that our world needs to be cleansed. He showed us that there's seas and oceans, these vast things that... We can't control, and and yet someday he's going to cleanse all of that. He's going to do the great salination process and get rid of all the salt (laughs) on our behalf. He goes on and he says, I also saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Listen, we don't want to be prepared if we're really honest. We don't want to be prepared by someone else. We want to prepare ourselves. I, I want to be able to prepare myself the way I want to look and the way I want to be and the way I want to do things. And God says, no, no, no. There's going to be a bride that's been prepared by me. I'm going to get the bride ready. The way she needs to be ready properly. And we kind of know this because have you ever been to a wedding? It takes a, I just don't understand, but it takes a lot of people to get a bride ready. You ever notice that? Like, really? Like, back in the day, it was like you just came out of the field, you got married, you went back to work. But today, it's like, we got to take a lot of time to get the bride ready. And it says, he sees this holy city. He says, look, you long for a place, you long for a city, you long for, for, for something where there isn't evil. You don't have to worry about being shot or having an accident or the mess of the... He goes, there's coming a city, a new Jerusalem, a whole new way of doing things, and it is going to be so glorious, it's like the day that a bride and a husband are waiting for together. Are you that excited about this? Most of us are more excited about finding the person we want to marry than excited about the fact that God is preparing us and he's preparing a time when we'll be together forever with him. And we're so concerned about not having someone here or having to struggle here if I don't find the right person and all this kind of stuff that we're not even excited about the reality that what Christ is going to do someday. That earthly marriage is just a picture of the ultimate marriage, the ultimate feast, the ultimate relational connection with Jesus. That's all it is. It's just a picture. And our marriages are really salty here on earth. They're real salty. This one isn't going to be salty. And he says, God has prepared it. Let me ask you, do you see you need to be prepared? Do you see you need someone to prepare you and other people to prepare you? Or you got it. You're good. Leave me alone. I'm fine. <laughs> you need to be prepared. <laughs> I need to be prepared. I need help. Because I am an ugly bride. <laughs> Just being real. I need, I need some help. And God says he's going to prepare this city. He even says, I've been preparing this new Jerusalem in heaven, getting it ready for a long time, and I'm going to bring it. God is patient with you. He will make everything new in your life, and he will be patient to make you new, to clean you up, to make you beautiful in his eyes, prepared for this moment and prepared for this relationship but you have to be willing to let him make everything new don't cling to anything that you used to do that you think you got to be able to say God I surrender I, I'm not I'm not asking you to come into my life I'm not surrendering my life to you because I want you to make something I already have better 
I'm surrendering to you because I have nothing left to offer you. There are no leftovers I've got. And I can't prepare anything and I can't get anything ready for you because I'm a mess. And God says, good, I can start this process with you and I can make you a new creature. He goes on and says this, then I heard. So after John sees this vision, this new heaven and new earth, this city coming, can you imagine seeing a city coming down? out of Like, wow. I mean, how amazing. It's, that's better than any movie where, you know, they show movies where the cities go up in the air and then they come down and whether it's Avatar or, you know, pick a, pick a movie where they, you know, they do that. It's just way better. And then it says, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. <laughs> if, you're, if you're offended by things being loud, you're, you're really not going to be comfortable in heaven. Heaven's really loud. Our home is really loud, just so you know. It's kind of a joke in our house. Like we, we talk to one another from other rooms, full conversations. Like full conversations. Like, yeah, hold on, the microwave's running. Hang on. Like, and we won't get up. We'll just wait for the microwave to ding and then start the conversation again from the room. Like it, it's loud. I remember when Susan and I were first married, we went to visit her grandmother who was in a nursing home. This is actually, we'd been married a few years, but not long. We went to visit her mother in a nursing home. We were sitting at a table with her brother, Susan and myself, and we were visiting with her grandmother, and there was another woman who was there, not quite fully in her right mind, but sitting at the table with her grandmother, and we're sitting there talking, and she's listening, and she's asking questions, who are you, who are you, and she asked Susan, she goes, who are you, and, and Greg said, oh, this is my baby sister, and she goes, oh, that's nice, so, so you're the baby sister, who are you, and I said, oh, I'm, I'm mad, and okay, I said, yeah, I'm the baby of my family too, and this woman, I mean, she's looking at you like this, I mean, you could tell, like, she's not really fully there. And then I said, I'm the baby, too. And she went, if, like, remember, Susan's the baby of the family. I'm the baby of the family. That's what we just told this woman. And she got real quiet. You could see the wheels turning. And she looked at me and goes, it's loud in your house, isn't it? And then she just sat back. My brother-in-law lost it. He started crying. He was laughing so hard. Right, two babies of the family, like, I'll tell you, no, I'll tell you. I, I mean, just, you know, like, they tell you in marriage counseling, like, you don't marry two babies of the family, bad idea. I'm like, well, God needed to sanctify us, so he put us together. It's been a long process. He's still working. A loud voice from the throne says, look. Everyone's attention is grabbed. You're not distracted at this moment. God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. It's not God's far off and he makes a world for us that's perfect and then he takes his hands off. He's actually going to be in among us, living with us. The, third, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, just like he walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, is going to return and he's going to be walking with us, spending time with us. And by the way, you think, oh, well, there's so many people. How could we ever get time with him? There's no time. It doesn't exist anymore. You live for eternity. You will have plenty of time with him because you have eternity. To spend time with it. There's not like a competition. 
It's not like, oh, I got to get him in before the sun goes down today. Oh, there's no, we'll see in a minute, there's no sun. Okay. Like, this is, this is everything we long for. We long for relationships that we don't have to leave, that don't end, that don't die out, that I, I want to stay with my, I, we long for that. And God's like, yeah, I'm going to fix all that. You'll never have a relationship that you ever have to leave again because everyone's focused on Christ and we're focused to get, like, he's fixing everything. He's fixing our cities. He's fixing our water. He's, fi- he's fixing everything that we try to fix. And he's like, here's the new heaven. Everything's going to be fixed. Everything's going to be made new. Everything. And he says, look at this. They will be his people. They won't just say they're his people and not do what he says. Oh, no, they will absolutely be his. I'm yours. I'm surrendered. And there will be no question. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will no longer exist. That pretty much explains the entire medical drug industry right there. Gone. Gone. No need for depression meds or anxiety meds and no need for cancer treatment. No need. Gone. Trust me, my parents are looking forward to that day with the number of pills they have to take. I can't wait for the day when I don't have to look at my little thing and take all this stuff. I'll be like, that's gone. I got a perfect body. And if I need something, I'm like, hey, Jesus, he's like, you got it. He goes on and he says, because the previous things have passed away. You can't have something new unless you're willing to give it up. you got to surrender, he said. It's going to pass away. Then the one seated on the throne says, look. This is an exclamation point. It's loud. You're looking at one thing. He's like, stop looking. Look there. And then he says, I'm making everything new. He also said, right, John, because these words are faithful and true. Most of our words are somewhat faithful and somewhat true. A lot of our words in our world today are not faithful at all and are not true. Jesus says, John, you need to write this down. Every problem, everything we long for, everything everybody's looking for will be fulfilled in him. On a new heaven and a new earth. It is, you, you need to not doubt it. Write it down, seal it. It is true, guaranteed. Don't doubt it. Listen, if you want to have joy in life, if you want to find blessed in your life, and you define blessing by all the stuff God gives you and him keeping you healthy and all this different stuff, you're going to be sorely disappointed. you got to die of something. I don't know what's going to get you, but I guarantee you it's not a blessing when it gets you. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. Most people do not die in their sleep healthy after running a marathon. That's not how we go out as human beings. It's ugly. It's awful. Why? To show us that you can't make leftovers good. They have to be thrown out at some point. 
Everything spoils in this world, but there's coming a world where nothing will spoil ever again. He says this is the best thing ever, and he says right here in this chapter, after all we've read, this is the Garden of Eden being restored. Trust it. It is faithful and true. And look at what he says. He goes, I'm going to wipe the tears. It's all going to pass away. I'm making everything new. I'm going to bring you to me, he says. I'm like a bride adorned. I'm bringing heaven to earth. No longer is it you're striving to get to heaven. Done. Gone. It's no longer I'm looking forward to heaven. Heaven's coming to you. Which is what Jesus did. Jesus brought heaven to us and he was rejected because they couldn't believe that was possible in their day. And there are people who believe the same thing today. And they couldn't believe that Jesus had to die to save us. Why couldn't he just come and make the leftovers better? And there are people who believe the same garbage today. God says, I'm going to make everything new. By the way, this isn't a new thing he's saying. Let's look at a few passages of scripture that this is what God's been saying since the beginning of the Bible. In Exodus, when God is making his covenant with Israel, he gets God's people with Moses, takes them out of slavery in Egypt. He delivers them. He's taking them into a new land, the promised land. He's getting them ready for the promised land. He's giving them his laws, his regulations. He's telling them how to live new, different than you used to live in Egypt, different than the people around you live. He lays all of that out for them, and here's what he says. I'm going to send so that you can live this life, so that you can obey these laws, so that you can follow me and where I'm going. He says, I'm going to send an angel before you to protect you on the way and bring you to the place I have prepared. Not the place you've prepared. Not not the earthly place you're going to have to go in and battle. No, no, no. There's an angel who's going to come and he's going to actually lead you to the ultimate place. By the way, the word angel there is messenger. When you read that word, it's not talking about a created angel. Let's see what I mean. Look at the next part. Be attentive to him and listen to his voice. Do not defy him. Do not stand up to him. Because he will not forgive your act of rebellion if you stand up to him. For my name, Yahweh, is in him. There is no angel in heaven whose Yahweh's name is in him. This is called a theophany. This is a reference to the person of Christ, and all scholars throughout history have agreed that this is a representation of Jesus. This angel messenger is the angel of the Lord that you read about in the New Testament. That every time it says the angel of Yahweh, it's not talking about Michael. It's not talking about Gabriel. It's not talking about cherubim. It's not talking about seraphim. It's talking about the person of Jesus. Because angel doesn't mean thing with wings that flies around. Angel means messenger. He says, I'm going to send my messenger to you to protect you on the way, so he's going to show you the way, bring you to the place I've prepared. Be attentive. And his name is going, his name's going to be my name. The name Jesus means Yahweh who saves in Hebrew. It's Joshua. This is Jesus in the Old Testament. And then he says, look, 
But if you will carefully obey him and do everything I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. For my angel, my messenger, Jesus, will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Pezites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And I will wipe them out. That's what we just saw in the last few chapters of Revelation. Jesus going before us, taking care of it. The reason we can know that we're going to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven is because he came from heaven to earth. It's what we talk about this time of year. He comes from heaven to earth to go before us, to pay the price we deserve. And then he says to his disciples, I'm going to prepare. This is the message. It's not a different message. It's not like there's an old covenant, old system, and an old God, and then God grew up, he got him a new wife, he learned some things, and he got a new covenant and a New Testament God. It's the same God. It's the same. Are there different covenants and commitments he's made? Absolutely. But it's not a different God. It's a different response from us. He's been the same forever and always. And just like he wants to eliminate the mess, he's going to come and he says, you're going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of all the mess. And then he looked, look, you must not bow down to their gods or worship them. See, our tendency is once we go into a place, once you go into the Canaanite land and the Hivite land and all that, your tendency is going to want to keep a little bit of the leftovers for yourself. And all through the Old Testament, you see that when the people of God did this, they got in huge problems and huge trouble for doing it. And it always corrupted them, and they took on the idols of the places they lived in. And God said, that's our tendencies. We see what people have, and we go, ooh, I'll keep a little bit of that. I'll keep a little bit of that. God's like, no, I want to make everything new. Trust me to provide for you. You don't need their stuff. You don't need what they offer. He goes on, and he says... Do not imitate their practices. The word Christmas means Christ's mass. The word Christ is actually the word Messiah. There's a lot of stuff we imitate that we try to change. The word Easter is from a foreign god, Istakar. That the church tried to adopt that so they could reach wicked people instead of saying, no, it's Passover. It's not Easter, it's Passover. It's the Lord's Supper. It's the resurrection. Like, this is beautiful, the resurrection. We are constantly trying to figure out ways how to use the leftovers to convince people to believe in God instead of looking at them and saying, you got to surrender. There's no making a deal with God. You surrender. He's God, you give him his life. And when you do that, you know what he's great about? He's patient with you and all the mess that you do. And when you worship idols, you do this stupid stuff. He's good to come alongside you and say, stop it. I love you, we're not doing this. And that's what he did with his people. Then he says, instead, demolish those practices. Smash their sacred pillars to pieces. Worship the Lord your God. What that means is Yahweh who is Yahweh. Worship him. Don't look around at what everybody else has and what the world has to offer and what they want you to chase. Just stop. Don't don't do it. Look at him. Worship the fact that this revelation thing's coming someday. Like, yes. 
I can know this, that I can follow him and that he will lead the way. Look at what Jesus says. In John 14, 1, Jesus said this, your heart must not be troubled. Underline that. Write it on your hand. Put it on your mirror. Everything in our culture says you better be troubled. Oh, there's a new story. Twitter. Oh, oh no. There's a new political scandal. Ooh, surprise. Politicians are corrupt. Shocking. Like, we don't even care the politicians that are good. You don't even know who they are. Because it doesn't sell news. Most of them aren't given any credit or any power because, well, we can't manipulate you. We only want to put politicians up front that know how to manipulate everybody. Those are the ones we want to put out front. Not the ones that are just brutally honest. We don't even elect them. Because we know intuitively, I want a politician that will do what I tell him to do. So here's my side over here with all my beliefs. And I want to be sure I elect someone that, that will do what I can tell him he needs to do or she to do. We don't even ask, do they know Jesus? Do they honor him? Do they claim him, but it's a joke? Here, you look at this, and he says, don't be troubled. They all believe that stuff. They live that stuff. He said, you believe in God and also believe in me. It's that simple. Believe in God and believe in the angel that he's been sending over and over again, the messenger who's supposed to come, who's been promised from the Old Testament. In my father's house are many dwelling places. It's a giant city coming down of heaven. There's a lot of dwelling places. We'll see in a minute that it's a giant cube. It is. It's a ginormous cube coming down. You think, how's that even possible? Have you ever seen a skyscraper? Have you ever seen a downtown full of skyscrapers? If you scraped away everything around the skyscrapers, what would you have? A giant cube. Like, this isn't, like I got to measure all the skyscrapers. Like, this is going to be bigger than, better than anything we could ever build. And then he says, I would, listen, if there weren't many dwelling places, if there were just a few and only a few people got in and God wasn't interested in trying to give everybody an opportunity to know him and have a home and know that they're loved and cared for, he said, if that weren't true, I would have told you. But I'm going away to prepare a place for you. Jesus is looking at them. He's saying, look, I'm getting ready to die. This is before he's died, before he's ascended. He goes, I'm getting ready to go away and I need to go away to get things ready for when you come to me and get things ready for when I'm going to come back to get you. This is why we leave families at Christmas. Because you got to go back to work. <laughs> okay, I'm going away to do some more preparation so I can bring gifts next year. Because I'm going to be out of money. Like, <laughs> i got to go away and come back. And then he says, so that where I am, you may be also. The question is, do we want to be where he is? Because to be where he is means we can't keep anything of what we have. It's all got to be made new. And then he says, you know the way to where I am going, Jesus says. You know the way. <laughs> I love this. Thomas. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. <laughs> we don't know the way. Like, you say we know the way. We don't even know where you're praying on a daily basis. And we got to go find you out in the wilderness. We get up and everybody's like, where's Jesus? I don't know. He wandered off again. Did anybody see him? He headed that direction. 
Peter, go see. John, go find him. Okay, I'll go try to find him, see where he's at. Like, he was constantly, like, we have no idea day-to-day following you where you're going. I mean, get in a boat. We're going to go across, and we're going to go to a demon-possessed island. That's where we're going. Let's go. No, I don't want to go there. It'll be great. It'll be awesome. Let's go. There's a story about that in the Bible. And the first person they meet is a guy named Legion who has many demons, and he tries to kill them. Like, we keep looking for little ways. Where am I going today? What am I doing today? What's going to happen tomorrow? What did, 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 did? And God's like, stop. You know the way. Trust in that and allow all this stuff to be directed to that end. You know the way. Now direct your life to that way. But we won't do it. I won't do it half the time. I got to think to myself, no, wait a minute. I, my goal, like I'm going to fix this toilet. It's just going to break again. But I got to fix the toilet. I'll be glad one day when there's perfect toilets. However that works. Like we should, we should actually think that kind of weird stuff. We should. We should think that way. Man, I can't wait for the day when things on my body work properly because they are not working properly today. We should be thinking like that, he says. You know the way. Keep your eye on the goal, on the prize. Keep your eye out there. And then he says, here's the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one gets to heaven, gets to God, except through me. That's the way it's been designed for all of eternity, period. He's the one that decides who's in and who's out. You want to know why? Because he's the one that died and came back to life when none of us would have. You see, Jesus is looking and he's saying, Thomas, You want an answer to the end times. You want an answer to, is it worth it following me? You want an answer to all these things. I'm right here. (laughs) I'm right here. You don't need, I am the way, Thomas. All the truth you're looking for. I wrote it all down. I'm the word. Here's the truth. I'm the life. There's no other life you're going to find. Like, Either I am who I say I am, Jesus is God, the Messiah, he is Yahweh who saves, or I said this before, Christianity should be the first religion you throw out the window and go do one of the other ones. Because all the other religions say that the way, the truth, and the life comes through what you do and how much you work and how you measure up to whatever God or whatever heaven or whatever nirvana you believe in. Christianity says, nope, Ain't going to work. Because all you got is leftovers. And God's the only one that can make anything new. So are you surrendered to him making you new? Well, that's, that, that's painful. It is. We'd rather keep the leftovers. I'd rather have a fridge full of leftovers, even if some of them are spoiled, because at least I got options. And I know there's food. Then an empty fridge and be like, I I wonder if God's going to provide for me tomorrow. Let me ask you, are you struggling to know the way in your life right now? Why? Do you know Jesus? Do you believe in him? 
You know the way. You know things the world doesn't know. You know the truth. You know about life in a way that no one else knows about life. That should cause us to just be like, yes. <laughs> ha. In Hebrews it says this, Paul was writing, possibly Paul, but the writer of Hebrews writes, chapter 11, verse 13. He's talking about all the faithful people of the Old Testament. And he says, all of them died in faith. That means not seeing new, not seeing everything made new, without having received the promises. But they saw them from a distance. They greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. That's what the New Testament says, by the way, too. The New Testament says you are a foreign resident. He says all of them in the Old Testament knew that this world and all they had and all their wealth wasn't going to reach them the promised land. The ones that truly trusted God, Abraham, Moses, these, these men of faith of the old Noah, they were like, we got no other option but to surrender everything we have to God. Because we know this earth isn't going to save us. We're going to die. It's a mess. And then he says, now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. See, when you talk the way, the truth, and the life, like already but not yet, I already have Jesus but not fully yet, when you're talking about heaven a lot and you're talking about eternity and you're pointing people to that, it exposes that you don't think this is your home. You're weird. You're a weirdo. Yeah, I am. Jesus told me I would be. He said I would be a peculiar person. If you think I'm peculiar, Jesus is winning in my life. He says, you will be aliens and foreigners. We will be. We won't look like everybody else. They're going to be like, you're not from here. You're not like the rest. You're different. I know. Because I've been made new. And I'm trying to die to all the old things and be made new in my life. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. Most Christians are so concerned about what God's taken from them and what they've lost, not about the eternity that they have promised to them forever. We're more mad at God for things we've lost, things he's taken away, than we are for everything he's given. He goes on, he says, but they know, but they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You got to remember, the writer of Hebrews wrote about this prepared city before John wrote about the new Jerusalem coming down of heaven, out of heaven. Like, he didn't have revelation. Like, these are the themes of the Bible. He goes on and says this, verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. We live in the already but not yet. Christ has already died. He has already promised. He has already done everything that needs, like, Already, just not fully yet. That's what a promise is. A promise is we are already betrothed. We are already, I'm not dating anyone else. You have an engagement ring. It's me and you. Nobody else. That, that's already, already got it? Good. Just not yet. Like the date's in a year, two years. Like this is the, we got to get ready for the date. We're going to get some premarital counseling. You need premarital counseling. Trust me. We're going we're gonna to get some help. We're going to make sure our family's on board. We got to save up some money. We got we to gotta do all this stuff. But we're already, 
but not yet. Well, but we're already married, so why can't we just like do all the not yet stuff? Because it's not yet. <laughs> you got to wait for stuff. Don't do the not yet because it's not yet. That's why God says to wait on the sexual part of marriage. It's a picture of this. It's the, yes, you're already betrothed. Yes, you already have. Now, can you wait? Can you trust me? Can you believe in me? Can you believe that one day there's going to be an intimacy that you'll, you've never experienced? It'll be amazing. That, yeah, maybe in your past you had sex, but it wasn't real sex. It was, it was just selfish physical desire there was no intimacy or love or compassion or care there it wasn't a giving of oneself to another it was just a self-pleasing of one another there was no inviting God into the marriage bed for him to look and celebrate what he is doing and has done in two people's lives no it's like we got to get God out of the bedroom so we can do everything we want to do see everything is a picture of how it's going to be one day this now is Jesus going to have sex with us no and no He's talking about intimacy. See, we want the, what we see and what's happened before. No. That's just a picture of true intimacy. All sex is is two people that are designed a certain way, fitting together to reproduce something else. You've been prepared a certain way. Christ has prepared himself, and then he's bringing everything else. It's all just a mirror or a picture. In John, Jesus said it this way after this. When Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scripture, oh, I'm sorry, I stop. It is done. He says, I am the alpha and the omega. That's the Greek alphabet. He's like, I'm all the words. I'm all the letters. I'm everything you could ever know, the beginning and the end. I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. No more salt water laying around. I will give fresh water all the time. No need for purification. you got to remember, in this day, everybody drank wine because water was dangerous to drink, just like it is in some places in, the, in our world today. We take for granted that we have clean water. Clean water is kind of a relatively new thing. I don't know if you know that. Like, it's just been in the last couple of hundred years that we figured out like, what clean water is because we didn't know germs existed. And we just kind of take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. And he says, I will give it as a gift. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to protect it. It's a gift. The victor will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. You're going to have a relationship with Christ that is so close and intimate that God the Father sees you as one of his children. And he says, the victor will inherit these things. Oh, so I got to try to be a victor. No, Christ is the victor. Do you know Christ? Yes. Well, if you know victor, then you're victor. It's just that simple. Now, does that mean I don't have to do anything? No, because if you know Christ, and you know your name is his name, now you're like, well, I want to be like him. I, I want to reflect him so that other people can know that they can have victory, not in their leftovers and with what they can do, but in what he can do. So yes, I change my works. My life changes, not because I'm trying to prove something to God, but because I want everyone to see how great this relationship is. It's like in a marriage. A healthy marriage is not two people trying to get one another to like each other and do stuff. and That is, that is unhealthy. A healthy marriage is you declaring to the world, 
we're exclusive and we will always be exclusive and we have a covenant and we're going to fight for it and we love each other and it's never going to change. There you have it. That is the beauty of what Jesus is writing. Jesus said, after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished. Well, then why do we have the book of Revelation if everything's now accomplished? The already, but not yet. It's already accomplished. In the Old Testament, we just read in Hebrews, they trusted that it was already accomplished. And their faith in that already accomplishment of God is what gave them access to God and a relationship with him. I believe fully. And then he says, everything was accomplished that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's on the cross. He's hanging there, dying. And he says, I'm thirsty. Don't miss that. There's going to be no sea. He's going to provide water for all as a free gift. And Jesus, as his flesh is dying, says, I can't wait to get out of this place where I'm not thirsty anymore. I'm going to be with my father in just a minute, and I'm never going to be thirsty. This body will be gone. I'm thirsty right now, but I'm only telling you this because I know everybody out here, you're thirsty for something and you're searching for it. And I'm telling you, there's no way you're going to find it unless you pick up your cross. You're always going to have to need something new. And my father will fill you. And it says a jar of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, that garbage is finished. I'm not drinking that garbage ever again. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. goes on and says this in Revelation. So that's what we as believers can hope for. If you believe in Jesus, but then he says, but the cowards, the unbelievers, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars, their share in this whole process, this new Jerusalem, this new heaven and this new earth, will be the lake of fire that burns with, will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Some of you may be cowardly at times. Some of you may not fully believe in God at times. Some of you may do some vile things. The Bible's full of murderers. David was a murderer. Moses was a murderer. Pretty sure David and Moses are going to be in heaven. Jacob was the biggest liar you'll ever meet, and like the whole thing's based on him. His 12 sons. I mean, he is a terrible human. I've been reading through Genesis the last few days. It's awful. Like, really, God, you use this guy? No one better? Well, the point isn't to find someone better. The point is to say, I can change anybody and I can use anybody. If you know Jesus, this isn't talking about you. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus, this isn't talking about you. This is talking about people who said, I'm going to trust. I'm going to be afraid. I'm going to not believe. I'm, I'm going I'm to choose to be by. These are people that are saying in their heart of hearts, this is who they are. This is their identity. Our identity is not in these things. Our identity is in Christ. And so I can be cowardly, but that's not who I am. 
I can be an unbeliever at times, but that's not who I am. I can be vile at times, but that is not my identity based on who birthed me. Born again. So yeah, I can do stupid stuff, but that second death isn't going to touch me. Because it's not about what I do, it's about who did for me. Now, should I not be a coward? Absolutely. Should I believe in? Yes. Should I avoid? Yes, yes, and amen. Because if you can continue to do these things and have no conviction and no sadness and no brokenness, and you don't need to come back to Jesus and have him wipe the tears away for this stuff, then you don't know Jesus. And if you avoid him because you've done this stuff and you think, oh, he could never wipe my tears away, he could never make me new, that's a lie from the pit of hell and that's where you're going to be. He wants to wipe the tears. He wants to save. He wants to encourage. That's his heart. But we have to say yes. No more leftovers. I surrender. Listen, I'm not trying to scare people. You're not saved by your works. You're not kept by your works. You are saved by Jesus and you are kept by Jesus. And by the power of the Holy Spirit that he gives to those who are his. That's the New Testament message that makes it clear. Old Testament says it too. New Testament's clear. You didn't do anything to save yourself. What are you going to do to keep yourself? See, it's about a decision. It's about saying, you know what? Here's how I know this. Let's read on. Jesus says in Matthew, a good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. You'll recognize the coward, the unbeliever, the vile by their fruit. And you think to yourself, yeah, I don't produce very good fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, should, I don't see a lot of that fruit coming out. Well, there's also the fruit of repentance. The Bible calls it a fruit. The fruit of repentance. Do you repent? Do you sin and go back to God and be like, sorry, I love you, help me. Do you come back to the body of Christ and you're like, I keep doing this, guys, I need help. Help me. Then this isn't talking about you. That's good fruit. Good job. <laughs> he goes on and he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. What's the Father's will? To surrender to the Son. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? That means speak the Bible. Drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name. I mean, we used your name. We said your name. We did things with your name. And Jesus is going to say, thank you for using my name. My name is very powerful. I'm a very powerful God. I'm glad you did that. But I have no idea who you are. That's what he says next. I will answer them. I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreaker. Great. I'm glad you used my name. My name needs to be spoken. I'm really happy about that. But I don't think we have a relationship. All you did was use me to get the stuff you thought was important that you wanted to do. He goes on, he says this. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him. Okay, there it is. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. What's his word? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. <laughs> okay, do you believe I'm the way, the truth, and the life? Good, you're keeping my word. Praise the Lord. 
Then he says, my father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. This is Revelation. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but it's from the father who sent me. I've spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the father will send him in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Peace I leave with you. Remember when he says peace I leave with you, all the guys he's speaking to ended up dead for their faith. They got their heads cut off. They were crucified upside down. They were ran through with the sword. So it's a different kind of peace we're talking about here. My peace I give to you. You don't earn it. You don't get it. You say, well, God, I've done all these good things so I don't have to be run through with the sword, right? I don't have to have my head cut off. I don't have to be crucified upside down because all the peace. No, I'm going to give you peace while you're being crucified. It'll be great. You're going to have more peace than anybody. You're going to be like, hey, I'm kind of thirsty. On the cross, you're going to like cry out and say, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You're going to have so much peace in where you know you're going and in the relationship that you have that you're not going to be worried about anything but getting there, which was Jesus on the cross. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine. It's from the Father. He goes through all this, and then he says, look at this. The Holy Spirit is going to teach you all things and remind you of everything. He's going to teach and remind That means we got to have the word of God. My peace I give to you, I don't give as the world gives peace. It's not that kind of peace. Your heart must not be troubled or fearful. Everything in our world is trying to get us to be troubled and fearful so it can manipulate us. Everything. Don't participate in it. I'm I'm not going to be troubled and fearful. That doesn't mean we don't talk about there's troubles. Yeah, that's kind of scary. That's revelation. Yep, that's trouble. That's kind of scary. Ha <laughs> ha. But I know the end. <laughs> I know the truth. He goes on and he says, You have heard me tell you, I'm going away and I'm coming to you. You've heard me tell you this. This is the plan. I'm going to go away, I'm going to come back. You've been betrothed. You're wearing the engagement ring around. I know Jesus. I'm with Jesus, right? Like, this is great. And someday, it'll be fulfilled. Everybody's looking at you going, where's your, you keep wearing an engagement ring, talking about this husband, but it's like, you've been wearing that for like 30 years and I haven't seen him. I think she's nuts. No. He's worth waiting for that much. He's worth it. He's worth bragging about. He's worth waiting because there's no one like him. He goes on and he says, Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bulls filled with the seven last plagues, we looked at that a little bit ago, came and spoke with me. He says, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb of God. This had to be awesome. Hey, the bride wants to show you how good she looks before the wedding. Come come here. You got to see her. Only special people get back there with the bride. Whenever I do a wedding as a pastor, I always tell people, you need to have a buffer. Your maid of honor or someone needs to be a buffer that nobody gets to the bride unless they give permission. Otherwise, everybody will come to the bride and stress her out. They'll be like, we're missing one table setting. Who cares? If I'm sitting at that table, it's probably just going to keep me from setting stuff on fire if it's a candle or playing with it if it's water. 
Because that's what I do when I get those place settings. It's like, oh, I want to play with that because there's no food on the table yet. So I'll just have fun here and set stuff on fire and dump some water and play a little game where I say, look at that hair in the water. And I smack it and it splashes you in the face. And I go, ha, ha, ha. I mean, so it's probably best that my table doesn't have a place setting. Because everybody's troubled and worried and they dump it on the bride. And so whenever I do a wedding, I said, you need to have person, someone who has backbone and no one gets to you as a bride unless it's a serious issue. So that when mom or grandma or whoever friend comes in and they're like, oh, it's the greatest tragedy. Really? Like there's, we can't marry him today? Like the groom died? No. Okay, well then go fix it. Have a nice time. She's never going to remember there was a missing place setting. She doesn't care. She's going to be beautiful, walk out, see her husband, and that's it. And they're thinking about one thing from that until it happens. That's what's going to happen, I promise. So don't stress her out. Don't bring all the troubles. He says, look, I want to show you the bride. You get access. The wife of the lamb. Not the wife of the lion. The wife of the lamb. The guy that's willing to die and give his life. Chapter 10 says, Then he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. There's going to be mountains on the new earth taller than the city. Who knew? Then he says, Arrayed with God's glory, her radiance was like a very precious stone, like jasper stone, bright as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. 12 angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. That equals 12 for you mathematicians. The city wall had 12 foundations, and 12 names of the Lamb's 12 apostles were on the foundation. This thing's been planned out from the beginning. It's why there were 12 sons and there were 12 apostles. This isn't by accident. This is all being built carefully. God is sovereign. He is doing his work, and we do not need to doubt it. And... He's fulfilling the promise, the Old Testament promise to those guys who gave their life and to his disciples. He's like, I'm doing this thing. And everyone who comes in is going to remember, oh, I remember that. I remember Dan. I remember Judah. I remember Peter. I remember John. Like, you're going to keep coming out and all these stories and the faithfulness of God is just going to be everywhere. And these huge high walls and you're going to go, wow, these walls used to keep me out of this place. But now the gates are open. I never have to be kept. But these gates are a reminder. There was a time when I had to. But now I never have to be kept out. He goes on. He says the ninth topaz. The tenth chrysoprase. The eleventh. I should have practiced this. Jacinth. The twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates are the twelve pearls. And each individual gate was made of a single pearl. A pearl is made by a piece of sand making an irritation an oyster. That's a big oyster. That's some giant oysters that can produce a pearl and be burdened with the burden of that sand grinding you that long that like you make a pearl that big. And then it says, the broad street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Huh? Gold is God's asphalt. <laughs> the next time you're like buying gold because they tell you to buy gold online and make sure it's with your portfolio, be like, asphalt. I need some asphalt. Because that's all it is. By the way, if things get really bad, I can promise you no one wants to eat gold. Your gold won't be worth anything if things get really bad. They'll take a, they'll take a quart of wheat 
as we read in Revelation, over any gold you have if things get really bad. So you can stock up all the gold you want. You can have all the gold in the world. Great, fine. It's not going to matter when the end comes. He goes on and he says this. I did not see a sanctuary. You want to know why there's no sanctuary? Oh, because he says. Because the Lord, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. I don't need to build a building. The church is not a building. It's people. There's no sanctuary. There's just like places we go and get to gather together. It always bugged me when people say, this is the sanctuary. I'm like, no, 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 this is the sanctuary. That's the sanctuary. That's any human heart where God resides is the new sanctuary. And whenever we get together, we have a party because our sanctuaries are together. Then he says, this city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the earth will bring glory into it. Each day its gates will never close because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing profane will ever enter it. No one who does what is vile or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. This is everything we try to create our cities to be. We put up lights everywhere so that in the dark nobody gets killed. We are trying desperately to build cities like this where there's no evil, where the murder rate's low. We are trying desperately to have a city like this and the one thing we're not willing to do is surrender to God to bring that city. No, 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 there's gotta be a way I can fix this. There's gotta be a way we can do it. No, there's not. You need to surrender to Christ. We're not gonna fix this. There's not enough police. There's not enough National Guard to fix the human heart. There's just not. Do we need police and National Guard? Yes, because our hearts are really wicked. (laughs) And we'd kill each other if we didn't have laws and protections. But that isn't going to fix it. And then he says, look at this. Nothing profane will enter it, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. The city doesn't even need outside light. Because God just lights it up. Power's never going to run out here. We don't have to worry about running out of fossil fuel or nuclear power. That pro- power problem solved, check. Drug problem solved, check. Food problem solved, check. Only those written. Let me ask you, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? You know how you get your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? You ask Jesus to write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's that simple. Like, I... I want my name written in your book of life. I surrender. I'm going to stop trying to buy a ticket to get into heaven, and I'm just going to surrender to you. Finally, then he showed me the river of living water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the broad street of the city, the tree of life was on both sides of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit producing its fruit every month. This tree has roots that just run all the way down. It's one tree, roots connected. It's kind of like the redwood trees or the aspen trees. That's how they work in the root systems that go together. The leaves are the tree for the healing of the nation. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the lamb will be in the city and his slaves will serve him. That means have you surrendered to him? They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Remember we talked about the mark of the beast? No, no, no. His name's going to be on you. You never have to fear because you have his name. 
Night will no longer exist. The people will not need lamp or sunlight because the Lord will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. You're actually going to be a part, we'll look at this next week, of reigning with Christ. And notice that he says right there, his name's going to be on your forehead. So you know what that means? When I see you in heaven, I'm going to be like, Jesus. Yahweh saved you. Yahweh saves on your forehead. Yahweh saves on your forehead. I got a lot of forehead. He can write it big on mine. You know what I'm saying? Yahweh saves, baby. It's not me. It's not about me and it's not about you. It's about him. Now, we're still who we are, but when we look at each other, the first thing we see is Jesus. Guys, this is our story. If we don't tell it, no one else will. The world is looking for something new. We keep electing people. We keep doing all this. And Christ is saying, you're not going to find it. Except in me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the book of Revelation. I thank you that it is an encouragement. It is a blessing that makes us, should make us happy. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to walk through this book in such a way that it gives us the hope, gives us the ability to, to look at kind of the ring on our finger and remember whose we are and what we're waiting for. Lord, I thank you that we have these precious promises that you didn't keep us in the dark. You lit it up so that we could see throughout all of human history from Genesis and Exodus all the way to Revelation that you have a plan. It is sure. It is certain. And there is no other religion on the face of the planet like it because all the other religions say we can work and get to heaven. Christianity is the only one that says, nope, God has to come get you. Question is, are we ready? And so Lord, I pray that if anyone in here has never surrendered their life to you, I pray that they would finally do it today, whether that's online or here. They would finally see that you're prompting in the heart of hearts and your Holy Spirit prompting, drawing them to yourself and you just want them to surrender and say, I'm done. And it's going to be hard because there's a new way, a new truth, and a new life they're going to have to figure out. But you promise that you will be with us and that you will prepare us for it. And so we trust in that promise. And for those of us who know you, I pray we'd be excited about this. I pray we'd be so stoked that we know this. That we couldn't just help but tell people that we'd start thinking about the way, the truth, and the life of where we're headed, instead of just looking around at the way and truths around us, we would think beyond that and really, truly think about eternity so that we might invite some people to be there with us at the marriage feast of the Lamb.